Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. It's hard to fail, but it's worse never to have tried to succeed. Is a quote from Theodore Roosevelt Jr., often referred to as Teddy Roosevelt, a soldier, conservationist, naturalist, statesman, historian, writer, and the 26th and youngest president of the United States of America. He also won the Nobel Prize for Peace and is whom we name the teddy bear after. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, someone who knows the satisfaction of not being one of those cold and timid souls where giving up is not an option whose motivation was to wear the national jersey and coat of arms, who has tasted success and disappointment, and who has been a world champion and captain of his country, and who is now at the helm of an organisation with one of the most trusted brands in Australia. Our guest today is Philip Kearns, AM, Chief Executive Officer of AV Jennings Limited, a leading residential property development company that has been part of Australia for over 90 years. Phil was recently appointed as director on the board of the local operating company of the Rugby World Cup, following his early appointment as executive director, Rugby World Cup 2027 bid, which was successful and now sees Australia tasked with delivering the 2027 and 2029 World Cups. Wallaby number 681, Phil played 67 tests at hooker for Australia, captained the team 10 times and was a member of three World Cup campaigns and two-time World Cup winner. Since retiring as a player, he has had a successful corporate career, working with Investex Corporate Advisory and Capital Markets Division, before serving as Chief Executive Officer of Centric Wealth, and more recently as Managing Director of Interisk Australia. Phil has also been a Fox News Sports commentator for close to two decades, been deeply involved in the Humpty Dumpty Foundation, and is the founder of the Balmoral Burn, an annual charity event which has raised more than $30 million for children's medical facilities across the country. He has competed numerous Sydney to Hobart yacht races and hopes to shortly return to the pool and build on his water polo game. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, Please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our first-time listeners in France, England, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, Wales, Argentina, and Fiji, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this engaging and at times very personal conversation, Phil, who is one of the most respected figures in international rugby union and Australian sport, 
takes us on a journey through both the lens of an elite athlete and a successful corporate CEO, sharing the highs and the lows from the packed stadium to the deal-doing boardroom. We explore what it means to have a crack and why it's okay to fail, what it takes to win, and how is best to lead. We cover the difficult years of Australian rugby and the promising future ahead. We learn about the special 20-cent coin and the seven precious minutes, about the importance of your values and the need to make the most of every day. So sit back and enjoy the man in the arena. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Phil, did uh, Sean Fitzpatrick organise the uh, the two sausages for you for that night's barbie? <laughs> Thought it might start off something like that. Sean and I didn't get off to a good start in our relationship. I blame that on him. <laughs> he wasn't very nice to me in my first test or mm. second test or third test. And not up until that point where I scored the try in my fourth test against the All Blacks. So we had that in 1989 when I played my first test against them. We lost that and he wasn't very nice. What are you doing out here, little boy? You don't deserve to be here. What are you doing, little fat kid? Why don't you go home to mummy? And and, and I just wanted to go home to mummy. It was a very daunting occasion, a great occasion, which I loved every second of, but it was a big day. And that kept on. We, we toured New Zealand next in the next year in 1990 in a three-test series. We lost the first two and we got to that third one. So my fourth test against them and um, might have scored that little try and that was my get back. Um, yeah, okay. So, so I maybe said eight or ten words and <laughs> <laughs> he'd already shared a thousand with me before that. Rugby World Cup, what does it actually mean to you? What does it conjure in spirit looking back and going forward as well? You know, it was only 1991, which we won, was only the second World Cup. 87 was the first one, 91 was the second one. So it was the newly established world championship, and it, it did mean something. It, no, no one in rugby had, until 87 had ever been the official world champion before. So to, to have that is really special for all players around the world. And now it's expanding and 20 teams in this competition, and so that's that's important. There's actually about 120 countries that it starts off in, and it gets whittled down to the final 20. And so it, it, it is a critical piece in the puzzle of world rugby, and, and the players feel that. And you've been a member of three, three World Cups? Three World Cup teams, two of them successful. 95, we had a bit of a shocker. You know, we let hubris and arrogance, in my view, get in the way of success. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. We, we were good in 91, and we were still successful in 92 and 93, and even 94, which was the Gregan tackle test. We beat New Zealand, and and we went into 95 thinking we were probably a little bit better than what we were. I think we had a few new players coming to the team who thought they won the 91 World Cup and were sort of living off that glory a little bit, and, and I think we didn't train as hard, we didn't work as hard, we didn't have the right attitude going into 90, into 95, but we regained that. What's the magic behind the scene, Phil? Now, like you say, it's 120 countries to start with, down to the final 20. Uh, very few get to that to that level, and then to play in three, but also to be a part of the magic behind it. What does it feel like? And, and what, am I, what am I looking out for, which I, maybe from the spectator's point of view, I'm trying just to see something. Uh, <laughs> there's a fairly important ingredient in a successful team. That's good players. Comes in handy. <laughs> so, so that's a fairly important part of it. And you know, if I, I'll 
won't even bother with the 91 team where you're starting to mention names like Far Jones and Campisi and Liner and Horn and Little. Yep. You know, you go to the 99 team when your back line is Gregan, Larkham, Herbert or, or Little, Horan, Roth, Tune and Burke in your back line. Like, that's a pretty fair side. Then You know, you're not even talking about your forward pack with Eels and Wilson and, you know, those sort of players in it. it you've got to have good players. And I guess the second part of that is you have to be united on the journey. You've got to all want to put your bodies on the line and your heart and soul into it. And if one person isn't doing that and you don't call them out on it, then you're not going to win. Who calls them out, Phil? Most important person is probably the skipper. That's who it hits the hardest with um, or the coach. That's the second one. And then third is the teammates around you. You know, there'll be people that you have in a team that you have a special bond with and if they say something to you where you're out of line or whatever, you're not putting in, then that stings as well. Uh, if you get all three of them, you're probably not going to get picked. <laughs> so what So what happened in 95 then? If you had all the ingredients and sense of basic skills, it wasn't things weren't called out? No, probably not. They weren't called out as, as much. You know, I remember um, guys saying that they were tired and, you know, we needed more rest before the games and that sort of stuff. I thought... I'm actually training less than we did in 91. Yeah, right. And I thought there was a bit of laziness creeped in, and I don't think it was called out. And, you know, by that time, some of the younger players from 91 had become senior players in 95, yeah. and so they were listened to. They had an agency uh, at that point, and maybe they'd got a bit lazy. What do you say? I think at times I was probably one of them. You know, I'm not saying I'm not guilty of, uh, I'm not perfection. Yeah, uh, I always uh, thought you had a reputation of putting things forward. I, I, I do. And, and it was only, re it was only after I came back from 95 yeah, okay. that, you know, you get in the house of mirrors and you take a good long, hard look at yourself and you think, you know, I stuffed up and I don't think all players did because some of them weren't there in 99. Some were, but not many. So I think it was those people that were prepared to get in the house of mirrors that um, continued on. So what are you expecting in this World Cup? From the Wallabies or just generally? <laughs> All the above. I, I think this World Cup's a really exciting one for me because there are, there are teams there that we haven't seen before. Chile, Portugal, you know, these sort of countries that yeah. are coming through that can be an important part of world rugby moving forward. USA aren't here, for example. Chile knocked them out. But they're USA are hosting the World Cup in 2031, mm. so they need to get their skates on to be, you know, be an important part of that. Canada out there, and then I think this is the first World Cup they've missed out on. So I think, you know, people in Australia often, you know, send the message, "Oh, rugby's dead." It ain't dead. Um, it's growing globally. We're having a bad trot. There's no doubt about that. But it, it's not dead. It's in fact alive and kicking. You um you enjoying the style of the game or the in the, in the different hemispheres? Is it, is it starkly different? You know, in any code, you can get good games and bad games. In AFL, you get boring games. In rugby league, you get boring games. The press never say anything about it because they're fanatics as well. Yeah. Whereas in rugby, if it, <laughs> if it's a crap game, the journals will tell you it was a crap game. Yep. People read it, people hear it on the radio, and they go, they mightn't have even seen the game, and they go, oh, that was a crap game. Did you watch it? Oh no, no, I didn't watch it. But you know, so 
the style in in the northern hemisphere they do play a different style it's mm. more of a kicking style there's no no doubt about it it's more of a forward game because the fields tend to be wetter up there yep. although that's evening out because the technology around fields is improved dramatically yep. so it is a different style but you can get an awesome game of rugby between wales and scotland and you can get a crap one in australia playing new zealand or vice versa you can just get good games and bad games the wales fiji game in this world cup was an yep. absolute crackerjack game absolutely i wouldn't say the wallabies fiji game was a good one no where would you put australia at the moment well i think their their world ranking is nine at the moment and i think that's probably pretty fair having said that any team between three and ten can beat each other on a particular on the day, day yeah. on the day, yeah. and we've just seen that with that game. You know, Fiji were absolutely the better game, a uh, better team on the day, um, and they prevailed. Um, but it, it's it is so close. Our world rankings are also skewed by the fact that we play New Zealand so much. Yeah, right. No other team in the world plays New Zealand <laughs> as much as what we do. Yeah. Uh, England might play them every three or four years. We play them every year, sometimes two or three times a year, and that forces our rankings down as well. So you're happy with the grassroots of the game, is that? No, I wouldn't say I'm happy with it. We've got a lot of lot of work to do in that space. I think rug- rugby league and AFL have done a much better job in that space, but money makes a huge difference. Yep. You know, the AFL television deal is something like $2.5 billion. Yes. Ours is in the tens of millions. It's chalk and cheese. Rugby has something very different that those other codes don't have. They don't have a World Cup. Yeah. Or a real one. Yeah, or even international. Yeah. Yep. Um, so if you are the best player in the world in rugby, you are genuinely the best player in the world. If you're the best player in the world in AFL, well, you're only the best player in Australia. Mm. So that's one difference. The second difference about rugby is there is a position on the field for every type of person. Fat, skinny, short, fast, slow. You know, the reason I loved the game is I used to play, so- play soccer as yep. a six and seven-year-old and Great maybe even five-year-old, five, six, seven-year-old yep. playing soccer. Now, tell me the last fat kid you saw playing, or fat bloke or woman, playing high-level soccer. Doesn't exist. You don't, or, no. or AFL. Yep. In rugby, I can have my body shape and there's a place for me in the game. And my role in the team is as critical if not more critical than that really fast, flashy, sexy-looking bloke standing out there on the wing. Yep. And and that's the the great thing about the game. There is something in it for everyone. Yeah, but am I going to start the game if the team keeps losing at the top? It's really, really important. It is really important to have success. You know, we've seen it just with the Matildas recently. Mm. And actually, I said to one of my, I said to a couple of my mates, and I've asked them. I said, name me one player in Socceroos. One current member of the Socceroos squad. Struggled? Absolute struggle yeah. street. The best they could get was Harry Cool and Mark Viduka. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right? And, but we're rattling off the names of Rasso and, and you know, Kennedy and Van Egmond and, and Kerr. And, you know, we could rattle all them off. Yeah. But we couldn't. And we'd only been at the World Cup in the Socceroos the year before. Yeah. So success is critical to the growth of the game. Um it's about television ratings, it's about sponsorship, and it's about attracting kids and creating heroes. Um, and we've got a long way to go on that. The best way to do that is from the grassroots within. Rugby Australia cannot save the grassroots because that's not their job. 
Yeah, but what is the grassroots now? Is it still confined to Queensland, New South Wales, or is it oh, broader no, than that? Well, no, is it, I think is it's it grown. Really? In, it's grown in Victoria. You know, much a higher population there, of course, of, of Islanders and Pacific Islanders are playing it down there. Yep. And there are burgeoning competitions down there. Same in, in Canberra. You know, during COVID period, there's lots of, lots of reports about country rugby clubs growing. Um, and there was a, the, <laughs> the primary reason for that is because the kids weren't at the private schools. So they, right. you know, they couldn't be at school because of COVID. So they'd go home and they'd play for their local local club. And so there was a boost there. And in fact, in a lot of the country regions around New South Wales and Queensland, rugby's grown. It's that transition piece between school and playing for your local club that is a nexus that's missing for us. And then once you can play for your local club, then who knows where you can go. And it's creating that connection from school through to the Wallabies that that we've lost or or from your local club through the Wallabies. That's why I'm thrilled that Phil War has taken on the role of CEO there. Yeah, okay. Phil, uh, I remember when I was a young first grader at Randwick, second and first grader at Randwick, yep. Phil War was the ball boy, running the flag and doing that sort of stuff, bringing yep. water out. And so he's seen the grassroots through Ringer Juniors and through the Rats, and then he went to Sydney Uni, uh, Sydney Uni by all the players, and then he went through and, uh, and becomes a Wallaby. So he knows how that connection fits. And, you know, for the clubs, it's so important to see that their Wallaby player is there on Saturday or Sunday. So he might play a Super Rugby game on Saturday, but he's got to be there Sunday. And he might even lace the jersey on for, or lace the boots up for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. but that's a really critical piece of it. Where'd you grow up? Uh, southern suburbs of Sydney, Blakehurst. Oh, you're Blakehurst, eh? Blakehurst boy. St. George boy, eh? Yeah, yeah. So I played juniors for St. George, Blakehurst Blues. And this is a thing that saddens me about rugby. The Blakehurst Blues don't exist anymore. Yeah, right. In fact, only two clubs that were around back then exist that that, that I used to play against, and that was Sylvania Bulldogs still exist. And, oh, yeah. And Baronier still exist. So I played for St. George Juniors, and uh, they ended up putting St. George and Port Hacking together to become Southern Districts. Yeah, I know that well. I'm yeah. not from the Shire myself. Okay, there you go. Um, what did mum and dad do? Mum uh, looked after me and my sister, and Dad was a Qantas pilot. So uh, he had quite an interesting background. He started out as a lift mechanic and electrician, and uh, that's what he used to pay his way to be become a pilot. So he, he paid impressive. for himself to become a pilot, um, and he flew mail planes around the mountains of New Guinea. Oh, yeah. And uh, a lot of blokes uh, are brown bread from doing that, and uh, so he survived that, and then he ended up at, uh, at Qantas. What made you play move into rugby? So you stay, as like most young kids, particularly in that region, you start in soccer. What made you go to rugby? I lived next door to a park where they played rugby. If you know, the, the park was called The Green across the road from Cole Bay Bowling Club. And, you know, it was clearly, I didn't get the ball a lot in soccer. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't put you in goal, they didn't put you in goalkeeper uh, then, eh? No, they didn't put me in goalkeeper. <laughs> and uh, so I said to Dad, and there were a few mates at Connells Point Primary, they went and they were playing rugby, and they said, come down and play. And back in those days, there was one move, right? When you got a penalty, there was one move, and that was Kernsey on the burst, right? <laughs> so, which is the equivalent of give it to the fat kid running hard, right? And so I'm the fat kid. I'm thinking this is good. i got an opportunity. So we got a penalty. I'll, I'll never forget it. And we're, you know, about eight metres out from the line. And I, I walk back about five metres and get up a bit of pace for pace for me. 
and they gave me the ball and I went over and I fought my way to the try line. I had about three or four little kids hanging off me and scored a try and I thought, that's it. I'm done. This is my game. Yeah, right. There's a spot for me here. I love this. And that was it. Now, you were adopted? Yeah, I was adopted. Yep. Um, Mum and Dad couldn't have kids. So there was sort of no big deal about it. Um, my sister was the same, both adopted. Yeah, okay. Different birth parents. But as as young as I can understand, I, I reckon I was maybe five or six when they thought I was old enough to understand that I was adopted. Oh, they told you then, and did they? told me right back then. Yeah, right, that's early. And it was like, okay. I mean, I, I know I know people now that I know they're adopted. They don't know? That they don't know they're yeah, adopted. Right. Yeah, right. And could you imagine how devastating that would be for them at yeah. that age now? So it was great. I mean, there was I had wonderful parents. Um, so it was never, it was never an issue. Was it a driving force? No, I don't think so. I think you don't reckon. I've heard a few people say it might be. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I um, I think when it's just a normal part of your life, it's you know it was just something that happened. It was yeah, no, no big deal. And mum and dad were always my mum and dad. I've never bothered finding out. Um, who my birth parents are. Most of the people I've found, I, I know that have done that, have had long-term and negative experience. Yeah, it's, okay. It all seemed great and rosy to start off with, and then birth parent gets a bit clingy or you know something goes wrong in that relationship and it turns out to be a complete disaster. So not only do you end up in a stink with your birth parents, you stick out, <laughs> end up with potentially a bad relationship with your adopted parents along the way and and i've just heard so many bad stories but i I guess if there's a health issue that i get then maybe i'll find out then but no so the curiosity didn't didn't overcome you eh? no no i i I figure either my mother or father might have been birth mother or father may have been large um (laughs) that's good good off the five meters good off off a five meter run yeah (laughs) fair enough now you um you go to newington Yep. So, Dad's a pilot, Mum's looking after you, and what made you go to Newington? It was the closest private school <laughs> to Blakehurst. Yeah. There was a lot of kids from the Shire went went there. There were a couple of blokes from, from my local primary school that I was at that went there. So, it was sort of a bit logical. It was a fair way away back those days. You know, you'd get your bus to Hurstville Station, then you'd get the train to Redfern. And you were in the blazer. And you were in the blazer. you picked on by all the uh, yeah. us public school guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thank God just before I started, they got rid of the boaters. Um, so that was a, a, a great thing that happened. Then you'd change uh, trains at Redfern and go to Stanmore Station and walk the rest of the way. So you get bashed between Stanmore <laughs> and the school and then you get bashed at Redfern and, you know, away you go. No, it wasn't that bad. We're all in a big group. I think one of the great things about was it was was a great melting pot of all the kids that are going to schools like, you know, Meriden and MLC and Trinity and all these. Other, what a great melting pot and a great way to to get to meet chicks and, <laughs> and other blokes. And it, it was terrific. And I, I feel sad. You know, I see all these school buses going around at the moment. Just about every um, private school's got oh, its own, insulated. own yeah, bus. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they don't get to mix with the kids from the other schools. Now, for a team bloke, weren't you a pretty good swimmer? I was a decent swimmer. Um, again, my body type didn't um, <laughs> quite fit the swimming <laughs> mould. 
but I loved it. I love nippers. I love everything to do with the water. You know, as a surfer, I love nippers. I water skied, you know, sailing, fishing, anything to do with the water I loved. And I still swim today. My, my main exercise that I do these, these days is, is swimming, ocean swimming in particular. I, I just love it, that sensation of being in the water, the calming nature of it for me. I, I just love it. Yeah, so I was, I was captain of swimming 1984 in Newington College, but I wasn't much chopper. I remember one race, we were racing uh, at Riverview College, and, um, you know, when you step up on the blocks, you always think you're a chance That's of right. winning. And I got beaten in, this is in the 100 free. I reckon I was 20 metres behind this bloke that won it. He went on to a couple of Olympics and became a member of the Green Machine, Michael Delaney. Oh, is <laughs> so, that right? Yeah. So it just wasn't your bad so, double turn then? No, no, I just... <laughs> Realised maybe this thing ain't for me. <laughs> so when did when did the you start thinking I'm actually half decent here in rugby? I had, uh, so I played second grade at school at Newington. Mm-hmm. Our coach was a bloke called Herb Barker. Um, his son Scott, my best mate, and and still is. And uh, anyway, Herb didn't pick me in the first fifteen. He was first fifteen coach, so he didn't pick me. And the next year when we left school. I was sitting at home and phone rings and uh, Scott's on the line and he says, Herb wants to speak to you. I said, okay, so g'day Herb, how are you going? He said, I'm coming past, I'll pick you up in 20 minutes. So I'm like, what for? Yeah, right. And he said, I'm going to take you to Randwick training with Scott. I said, Herb, I'm not going, to, I'm not playing rugby. He goes, why aren't you playing rugby? I said, because I'm shit at it. You didn't even pick me. Like, <laughs> why would I even play? And he said, no, no, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I said, I'm not going. Anyway. 20 minutes later, there they there they were, and okay. uh, he took me off to Randwick training, and there were a couple of other mates there as well. After the pre-season, uh, I got picked in first grade Colts. I thought, what's this all about? And one of the, the bloke who got picked in second grade was an Australian schoolboy yeah. hooker, and I'm in first grade. So, um, and Renwick's the best team in the in the country by a mile at this stage. Well, they were they were then yeah. uh, actually, and they were now. Now yeah. they the <laughs> so. That, that was sort of it. And then I, I got picked in a Sydney Colts team. And I just started to think then, maybe I'm actually all right at this. And it sort of went from there, you know, New South Wales under-21s, Australian under-21s. And I remember sitting down with um, Herb one day at the on the footsteps of his house in Gannon's Road, Caring Bar. Oh, yeah. And Herb said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be a wallaby. How old were you? I reckon I was 19. You Maybe pl- 20 at that point. Okay, yeah. And so I'd played a bit of under 21s and yeah. that sort of stuff. And uh, Herbie said, here's a 20-cent piece. And he said, when you make it, call me. So I kept that 20-cent piece in my wallet um, until the day I got selected. So that was the story. That's a pretty impressive story. Yeah. Gave Herbie a ring. Hey, would you, would that you was just... in the old days when they had the, <laughs> the old Telstra phone box where you put the coin in. Why do you reckon you weren't picked to school? What could you have oh. developed, or who were, do you remember who was ahead of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good bloke too. Um, Timmy Smythe was in in front of me, and he's a good player. Uh, he went on. He played for Eastwood a bit. I my body hadn't matured. You know, kids go through growth spurts, and yeah, as I've you know been joking about, I was a, the the fat kid through it all about thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and then everyone sort of went past me at that age group. I I hadn't hit hit puberty like they had, and you know after. 18, 17, 18, that's when I started to grow again, fill out. 
had a good game against the British Lions, didn't you, for New South Wales Bees? Yeah, geez, that, someone's researched that very, very well. <laughs> and well, that's, that's what really got people thinking, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, perhaps. Because you've had, um, a, what, you've been captain of these under-21s for a couple of times, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, no one ever tells you this stuff, right? <laughs> so if, if there's a particular game that they saw yeah. you play, you don't really hear about that. But um, I played for, for New South Wales against the British Lions at North Sydney Oval in front of a, a packed North Sydney Oval. Okay. And Rob Andrew dropped the field goal in that game to to win that match, and we, we nearly beat him. Mm. would have been an amazing victory. And, yeah, I, I played all right in that game, and um, maybe it was from there because then – uh, the Wallabies lost that series against the British Lions, and the very next game was my first test in 1989. All Blacks against the All Blacks, yeah, yeah. Now you um you were playing reserve grade at the time for Randwick, weren't you? I was playing reserve grade. So this grade. so this isn't this isn't a credible pick, isn't it? <laughs> it it was. The, so, there was quite a bit of shock in the papers and on radio that this kid, and there was three of us, by the way. Tony Daly was also selected. Yep. I'm not sure Dales had even played a New South Wales game, but at that point he was playing for Gordon. And Timmy Horan was also selected, and I'm not sure Tim had played a first grade game uh, in, in Brisbane, because he was younger than us. And so there was three of us picked for that test match. And uh, it was a shock for everyone, um, especially us, <laughs> who were picked. Number 681, is that is that you? Oh, I hope your research has done a good job. Yeah, I, I actually I, don't know. Yeah, I think it was. Right. Because they didn't start counting them until, no. <laughs> until after I was yeah. retired. So you get the Guernsey. Mm. You made that phone call? I did make that phone call. Any, advice, any advice you got back when I, when I on that conversation? No, I think I was in shock and Herb was in tears, <laughs> I think. Yeah, it was, um, it was a very special moment. And there's a lot of things about that whole week, or in fact, Four days, because all we were allowed then in by under IRB rules was you're allowed a three day preparation. That's it. That was it. So <laughs> you get picked, <laughs> right. and sort of the next day you're on a plane and you're heading off to New Zealand. So you get there on the Wednesday and you're playing on the Saturday, and that was IRB regulations. But it was the, that was still the amateur. That was still the amateur days. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wasn't entirely it was amateur. Starting the change, wasn't it then? No, it wasn't. Didn't change. Well. There was still paper bag money, like Campo was getting that out of Italy and those sort of places. The It didn't change. It didn't become professional until 96. But, you know, it wasn't about 91. There started to be a few things, but it was all under the table sort of stuff. But we did get a tour allowance. Oh, you got a tour allowance? $32 a day you're allowed by the IRB. Yep. Mate, I'm thinking, this is heaven. Like our first tour of New Zealand, you know, 1990. You're six weeks away on tour. They give you a free trackie. You get a nice blazer and some stuff and some training gear and some free boots. You get free Forex because that's who our sponsor is. They ship that over to you. Yep. And you get 32 bucks a day for six weeks. How good's that? I'm a uni student. I'm rich. It was great. Um, and it was always thought of back then, you had to have a job. You know, rugby was, was there, something we loved doing, and we'd fight tooth and nail to do what we did. But we always knew that there had to be a career. So most of us went to uni in some, of some shape or form, and all we we had jobs. And you had to ask your employer if you could go away on tour. Ever get rattled by the occasion? Because it's interesting how you seem to just take things on in, in your stride, Phil. Um, 
That's a big occasion, right? And you're playing against, and you're playing against one of the best forward packs in the world. I'm sure Gabe Yellow, as you said earlier, plenty of advice for for your first game. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit weird. I mean, I was, I was, I, you know, I'd go and watch the rugby, but I wasn't what I'd say a rabid fan. And you know, some of the blokes I was playing against, I'd never heard of. Yeah, right. And because it just wasn't. At the end, you, there was um, no. But it, wasn't, but it wasn't a thing I'd just do on the weekends, ever, was it? No, no, no. No, I, I was. I trained. I worked hard, really hard. I'm not that talented, so I had to work hard. Yep. So, I, you know, I, I envy is probably too strong a word, but I'll use it. I envy the guys that work hard and have great talent because they end up being the best players. You can never get away with just talent, and you can never just get away with just hard work. Yeah, you need a bit of both, eh? Yeah, I'm pretty much at the hard work end of the spectrum, <laughs> but but that's okay. Yeah, you must have a pretty strong mind because you play the next 46 tests straight, don't you? Uh, it's something like that. You're not going to get anybody and even break to have a chance to get in, are you? No. No, no. That that was my spot. That's what I loved, uh, and I'd fight tooth and nail to get it. And eventually I got it back too after an injury. <laughs> What's it feel like when you get that jumper? Uh, that's... Uh, that's a surreal moment, and not just one time. When you get the jersey, every time is a surreal moment because it's it it puts into for me, it put into perspective all that hard work. That's how it was represented in that in that jersey. It was always the last thing I put on before I went on the field to play. Oh, you got your boots, the socks, mouth guard ready to go, and you got your. Put everything on. I'd have jersey goes on last, does it? Yeah, if jersey goes on last. I'd have it sitting across my lap, and I'd look at the the coat of arms on the on the um, on the jersey, and that was that was it. And then when there's a knock on the door, and the ref said it's time to go, then I put it on. Any superstitions or anything else you do in the uh, the dressing room beforehand? No, I was always interested in some other bloke's superstitions, but but, but that was the only sort of habitual thing that, that I did. Ewan McKenzie, he wouldn't clean his boots until there'd been a, a loss, until we lost a game. Um, so his boots didn't get cleaned a lot because we won a lot back in those yeah. days. But he refused to clean his boots until there was a loss and he cleaned them again and away we'd go. Your coaches, they come and go. Tough job. Who spotted your talent or who, who do you think brought it the best out of you? Oh, I, think, I think there were probably three guys that were instrumental in, in my career. All Randwick guys, yeah, okay. um, as you'd probably expect. I mean, I've talked yep. about Herb Barker before. Um, you know, he obviously saw something to force me to go along to Randwick. Our, our first grade Colts coach was a guy called Alan Gaffney, um, who's a terrific bloke and still a still a mentor in, in, in some ways. A guy called Jeff Sale, who was a legend in Randwick rugby and Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And then the guy that made the ultimate call was Bob Dwyer. Yeah. And uh, they all, you know, Alan Gaffney showed a huge amount of faith in me to put me in first grade Colts over this Australian schoolboy player. And Bob Dwyer showed enormous faith in me to get me into Wallaby selection. There was another guy, Dick Laffin, along the way, who's no longer with us. And Dick was my first New South Wales coach. So he he's obviously spotted something as well. So so they were all instrumental. Um, the ones I'm closest to, I'm still close to 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 Alan and and Bob now. So in '89, you're playing New South Wales reserves. Yep. By '91, you're running out to your World Cup. Yeah, that, pretty quick, wasn't it? <laughs> that's unbelievable, isn't it? 
But I guess that's sport, isn't it? It's a short time at the top. Although you had quite an elongated career when you look at the period of time you and the three World Cups you're across. You're running out there in 91. I don't know, where does the confidence come from, I guess? I think confidence comes from, from hard work. Repetition, knowing knowing that you've done more than the bloke that you're competing against. And and whilst you never know it, you, you know, your gut tells you that I've done more than that bloke. I'm going to get on top. And so I think hard work gives you confidence. You know, it's the same thing, line-out throwing, for for example. You know, I Absolutely. I started out in my career as a pretty rubbish line-out thrower. And so what, you know, Bob Dwyer put a lot of individual work in me on that. But when you'd have a bad game, you'd go back to the goalpost and I'd start a metre out from the goalpost and hit the same spot 20 times on the goalpost. And when I'd hit it 20 times, I'd step back a metre and then I'd hit it another 20 times, and then I'd step back a metre until it was as far away as the back of a line-out, which is 15 metres. Yeah. And when I hit that 20 times, and, and that builds your confidence along the way through. Was there any significant turning points, Phil, for the first World Cup, 91? Was it a year before? Was it six months before? Was there a light bulb moment when the team were together, something that says, we're going to win this? No, I think Bob Dwyer's confidence that he had a team that could win the World Cup was really important to us. We played a game against Samoa, which I think was our second game of that of the tournament, and we only just snuck a win. I think it was something like 9-3 or 6-3 that we won that game in horrendous conditions in Klelekli. And um, we played bad, and Bob got us in the the team room a day or two later and essentially begged us to understand our talent and to realise our talent as a team. Yeah, right. And Bob was in tears. He loved a bit of a cry every now and then, Bob. <laughs> and and uh, But that's because he's an emotional dude and he believes his heart and soul in something. And I think that was a really important speech that, that he, he gave us. And... I think maybe at that point we just went, maybe he's right. Mm. <laughs> and it started to click from there. We beat Ireland in the last minute. We really dominated the All Blacks in the semi final. And then England next. What's it feel like to win? I know a lot of people say this, but it was relief. Uh, relief that the hard work has paid off. You know, elation. It, it's sort of a b- bizarre feeling because you, you've won it and it's sort of like, what's next? <laughs> Yeah. And and it's a really um, interesting moment because back in those days, people were allowed to run on the field. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we're at Twickenham and the whole crowd <laughs> start running on the field. Imagine them doing it that way. Yeah. Now, today, you just, you know, so so that happened and then we walked up into the open grandstand uh, where the Queen was and collected our trophy and, and, and off we went. But it was... Quite amazing, and it, it was a terrific team, and I, I mean team in all senses of the word. That we all got on enormously, all very different personalities, but which teams do and businesses do, but we all clicked. Any particular um, highlights in the sense of personalities or moments that you can remember? Well, there, I mean, there was a a, a very funny moment with um, David Knox. Who was the you know reserve five eight to to Michael Liner, and Noxie used to like a night out, and uh, 
anyway, he was spotted by Bob Templeton, who was our assistant coach, coming, who was an early riser, uh, Noxie coming home at about five o'clock in the morning from said night out. So anyway, at about half past five, Bob decides that he should ring Noxie and says, Noxie, Noxie, are you right? Oh, oh, Tempo, what do you mean? Am I right? It's 5.30 in the morning. Noxie, you're right. Noddy's crook. He's not going to play today. We need you right. Are you ready? Oh, no, Tempo. <laughs> and anyway, so Tempo played this out for the next couple of hours that, <laughs> that Noxie was going to be playing in that test. Noddy was fine the whole time. There was nothing wrong with him. <laughs> he just wanted to play the joke on him. Um, so it was that sort of bit... There was stuff like that going on quite regularly, and uh, and so that stuff makes a, a team click as well. After the World Cup, I do remember very clearly John Major coming to our change room. Oh yeah, Prime Minister John Major, Prime Minister John Major, yeah. and um, and I opened the door, let him into the change room, and he asked for our captain Nick Far Jones, and so I went and found Nick, and Nick was in the shower. I said, "Come on, Mister Major," and I remember them having about a fifteen-minute conversation. Nick. Absolutely stark naked, <laughs> and John Major remaining very focused to keep his eye line quite high, and uh, it was it was another great moment. In terms of footy, did you play anywhere near your perfect game during during that that cup? Uh, I think as a team, uh, that game against New Zealand was was as good as you get. We we were in we we built our form along the way through. We did have that misstep in the game against Samoa, but we built along the way. You know, we had a really good really good a solid or better even better than solid forward pack. But then we had Far Jones, Liner, Horan, Little, uh Roe Bucket fullback and Campisi on one wing and, and Edgerton on the other wing. And that's a pretty good team. It's pretty special, isn't it? Good team. Forty six games straight. How do you keep motivated? How do you keep physically sharp? How many injuries were you carrying? Because uh, you know, you're, you're not going to let anybody you else in, are you? <laughs> when you're young, you don't get injuries. It's <laughs> later on that you get injuries. Oh, the motivation was very, very simple. It's, it's As I said before, it, it sat on my lap before every test match and was the last thing that, was, that I put on. It was The, the jersey was the motivation. What it, what it meant, and also we would use quite a lot, quite rightly, the Australian people was our motivation and what it meant to to supporters of the game, you know, particularly people in the bush, it was so important to, to them that, that we won and that we had a great team and we played a, played a lot for them. But, you know, in that World Cup, we had so many faxes, it was ridiculous. We had six fax machines in the hotel in London going for us 24-7, yeah, just churning right? out fax machines and we had pages and like thousands of pages of them. And they're stuck all over the walls of our team room, and you know, so you could walk around the team room and just read what people had been sending from all around the place. And it was even then we didn't really understand the impact that we'd that we'd had. You know, we'd heard that people were staying up late and watching the games, and you don't really know what that means. But literally, everyone was staying up late and watching the games. And you know, we started to get faxes in from Western Australia and South Australia, and you know, Tasmania, places that weren't traditional you know, rugby territory and sort of, I think that built on us. And then uh, after we won and Nick Griner, the new Premier of New South Wales yeah. at the time, Nick Far-Jones had heard that Griner was going to hold a ticket tape parade and Far-Jones like somehow hunted down Nick Griner's number and said, 
you can't do this. Like, no one's going to turn up. Like, forget it. You can't have a ticket tape parade. And Nick Griner said, don't worry, Nick, we'll be right. We're, we're having the ticket tape parade. He goes, you can't. You can't do it. And anyway, we had the ticket tape parade. And and we actually didn't understand <laughs> how big that was going to be either. We we got in these little kind of Ford Fiestas or Ford, whatever they were called, um, with an open top roof. And we were in Pitt Street. And we had to come down Pitt Street turn left into whatever that one is on the water, on the quay, and then left into George Street to go up George Street. Yeah, yeah. And so from Pitt Street, we didn't know there was anyone there. We still thought there was no one. And we're just going to be driving up an empty, empty street and no one's there. So we turned the corner into George Street and we went, oh, my God. Like, And it was that moment where we thought this is real and we've actually had an impact, which is what we wanted to do is to have an impact. Now, you talk about that emblem, you talk about the jumper, the coat of arms, being the recipient of it. You then become the leader 10 times, aren't you? Captain yep. of the country. Of the country. Yep. That's pretty special. What goes through your mind? How do you set the team up? And I guess on this question, Phil, what is leadership then? It was a super special moment because on that tour, Michael Liner was captain and he got injured. And so I had to step up. And I remember Bob Dwyer actually, he, when he told me, I was sort of a bit in shock, I've got to say. And uh, it's probably the most stupid question of all time, but I said it anyway. <laughs> I said, Bob, what do you want me to do? And he said... I've picked you as captain because of the way you play, the way you train, the way you are with the, the team. He said, so just do more of that. And I thought, okay, that's pretty easy. So <laughs> so that was how it was set up, just be yourself. So there's the answer to the second part of your question is leadership's a lot about being yourself and, and being authentic and, and uh, you know, remembering your roots and not getting too far ahead of yourself. Do you give the uh, the rev up speech before the before you walk out the change room, or do you walk around, shake, just talk to them one one on one, and you know, very calmly? Do you pat them all on the back? Do you, you land them at halftime? What what do you what did you do? But all the above, probably <laughs> all of the above. You know, there are people that behave, sorry, and react differently to different forms of motivation. Yeah, for some guys, a quiet word and a shaking the hand is is all they need for some guys if you give them the rev up yelling rousing churchillian speech they go what the hell is that all about like that's just rubbish mm. and, and i don't need that and they don't need here. It. yeah it's right um, so part of the experience of being in the team for for that long is you you start to understand some of those personalities and that's what your job is as a skipper is to understand what those personalities and how do you get the most out of them so the answer to your question is quite right all of the above because just different people react differently you change it all as captain did you keep keep it under control i don't i don't think so um, even though he said be yourself could you be yourself yeah, I, I, I think so. Part of, uh, the, another part of your job is to deflect a lot of the rubbish and the distractions from the team. Yeah. So, you know, in some cases you do, you do have to remove yourself from some of the activities that, that might go on. So, you know, you might miss out on a bit because you've got to do a press conference or you've got such and such from a, you know, you've got to do something else with some politicians, whatever it might be. So 
you do have to separate yourself a little bit from the team. But I don't I don't think I changed. No, I think I've been pretty constant. Maybe that's really boring. No, no, it's, it's, it's what Bob wanted, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what he wanted. You do what most great sportsmen do. You do really well, but somewhere along the line, you have a um, you have an injury. Two seasons you missed? Yeah, I missed two seasons with Achilles injuries. I, I tore the Achilles four times. Unfortunately, I didn't snap it. Oh, that would have been better, would they it? They said it would have been better if I snapped it. Um, I said that to a mate of mine who was in the SAS. He said, I can do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right, mate. Um, so, so yeah, it was Achilles injuries, and then when I was coming back from that, then I did both my knees, uh, tore cartilage both my knees, and the recovery process. So yeah, that took up just about two years. Pretty lonely being on the uh, the sideline and also doing all the training yourself. That what goes through your mind there? I uh, very frustrating because uh, you just want to play, but you know I go back to that jersey, and that was my motivation. I'd have it at home. I'd sit it on my lap every now and then. Oh, would you uh, really? Just to look at that. That was a key motivation point for me. But I wanted that jersey back. It was mine. I wasn't finished with it. And so I had a crack. You got it back? I did. I don't think I ever got back to be the player that I was, unfortunately. And I knew that. And and, and unfortunately, in 99, uh, I got another in- injury which ended my career. I was going to finish anyway. Oh, were you? Yeah. I, I, we had I, 10 years at the top, hadn't you, playing for Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I knew it was time. My body knew it was time. And I, I didn't want to be one of those old blokes that hangs around too long and ends up being dropped. I was happy to go out on my terms. I would have loved the, my last game to be that 99 World Cup final, but it wasn't. I knew it was time. You're in the stands? In the 99 World Cup final? No, I was home. Yeah. We had- uh, So what happened there? <laughs> my second you... son had only been born about eight weeks before. So I thought, might be a good idea to get home and help out. Um, yeah, okay. Because our first son was, uh, they're only 16 months apart, those two. So uh, yeah, I thought it might have been a smart idea to get home and, and look after the family. If you look back, Phil, anything you would have changed- Anything you would have done differently, anything you would prepare differently, or maybe been more assertive or not assertive or anything else? I would have had less injuries <laughs> if uh, if I had my choice. But no, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. You know, a speech, which you well know, uh, is the man in the arena speech. And uh, I first saw that many years ago, probably when I was about 16 or 17, and it resonated with me. And then I didn't see it for a lot of years until, you know, more recently. And I love that speech. And I, th- I think the, there is a lot of satisfaction in uh, not being one of those timid souls, as yeah. it says in the cold speech, timid souls, cold timid yeah. souls that, that doesn't have a crack. Uh, you know, I can hand, hand on heart say I had a crack. And, and that that's satisfying. How much is down to mental? Oh, Huge amount. Resilience. Resilience is a critical thing, and the word gets used a lot more these days. Yeah, um, for, for every, every second. Yeah, okay. And so what does it mean to you then? That when you've been bashing the head, that when you're hurting, when something doesn't go your way, you get back up, you dust yourself off, and you get back in and you have another crack. That's It's as simple as that. Giving up is not an option. 
And if you've had a crack and fail, that's all right. You'll learn from those mistakes. That That's life. Life is ups and downs and goods and bads and just different things happen. And life is about the way you respond to those and and the way you move forward. And that's that's how you learn. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in lots of different situations, good and bad and up and down, and, and we get through it. Did you have the old side coaches in those days, Phil, or was that that's more? <laughs> <laughs> um, we did. Uh, and you turned up for the session? Oh, I didn't think I needed them. Yeah, yeah. And because they, they were there for one-on-one conversation. And but look at today, Phil. They've all got them. They've all got them today. You know, I think you can find your own mentor and your own person that, that you respect and, and think, you know, this guy's been through something like this before. Why don't I give him a call or, or, or her a call? There are lots of people who have been in difficult situations and they're not hard to find because everyone has. Everyone's been in a tough situation. It's how that they've, they've responded to it and how they've come out of it that, that people admire and that's why they're attracted to those people. So the psycho, I, I had every bit of motivation I, ne- I needed and it was sitting on my lap there with a with an emblem on it. That's all I needed. Worst bit of advice you got? Oh, worst bit of advice? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why this came to mind. Eat lots of carbos before the game. Oh, eat lots of carbs. Yeah. You know that's wait, the wait way. You that's, you that's your energy. Your energy sources, carbos and barb up. So I'm sitting there eating bowls of pasta and as much rice as I possibly could and all the rest of it. I'm sitting there at breakfast and there's Timmy Oren eating bacon and eggs and sausages and steak and I'm oh mate you witty you should be eating carbos. Yeah, how wrong I was. <laughs> You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Phil Kearns. In our next episode, I sit down with Peggy O'Neill, Chancellor of RMIT University and former president of Richmond Football Club. We're on the right track. We're on the right track and we have something to work with that that we could see the next premiership. And of course, our CEO was quite visionary and he had um, predicted the three premierships by 2020. We were thinking, oh, finals would be pretty good. Uh, (laughs) And that came to pass. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. So you leave the game on the top, as you say. Sort of, yeah. Yep. Is it hard to make the move? Is it hard to leave it behind mentally? You you hear of so many great sports persons who slip into some type of a mental challenge. Depression in some cases. How did you go? No, I was fine because I always knew it's going to come to an end. That I had to go. On, it was going to end, and I had to go into a career. I'd, I'd been in university. I'd worked jobs along the way, and that was a natural progression of life to go out of rugby into your career. That was just the natural progression that worked. So, was yeah. rugby ever full time then for you? Uh, it was for the last three years, but I always had something. On the side, there was some little thing going that would keep my interest in something else, which I think is healthy. Mm. It, it, and it's better for your game. If you just sit there thinking about yourself all day, yeah, <laughs> about your right. preparation all day, oh my God, how boring is that? And how self-absorbed can you possibly be? So I think to have that something else is really important. And it should be something else that's good for the rest of your life. 
sitting there playing a computer game, that ain't good for the rest of your life. But sitting there doing some study or reading some book or talking to someone or listening to your podcast or yep. whatever it might be yep. is healthy and good for what you want to do moving forward. So what did you set out to do once you finished the game? I did a, an arts degree and I majored in economics uh, and economic history and I wanted to be a stockbroker. So that was 1987 when I left university. So Gordon Gecko days. Uh, well, there might have been that little stock market crash in 87 mm. and Black Wednesday or oh, Friday right, or whatever yeah. they want to call that's it. That's right, it, yeah. it was some black thing. Um, one of the days of the week, I'm not sure which one. Anyway, uh, so I ended up not being a stockbroker <laughs> because there were no jobs around. And I, I remember going around town one day and I was trying to get my extensive CV as you do when you're 19 and just left university you can imagine it's a one pager and going around the stockbroking firms it was in the days when they still had the chalkboards and yes, all that right. sort of stuff right yep. I was walking home from Hurstville station and there was an AMP office that uh, was there and I saw positions vacant on the wall I should have known better yeah right so I walked at Hurstville. in at Hurstville yeah right so I walked in and I still remember the bloke's name was Reg, Reg Saguna, and I got the job on the spot. And I thought, <laughs> I thought this is great, but I should have known <laughs> that not a lot of people applied to be an insurance agent yeah, okay. back then, right? Yeah. And it was absolutely the worst job I've ever had, and absolutely the best job I've ever had. What? Get your own leads. Well, here's your phone book. There's your phone. Make a hundred calls. Yep. And book an appointment. Yep. And you didn't get a lot of yeses. <laughs> and <laughs> and so in terms of resilience, I'm not afraid of making a cold call these days. Let's put it that way. And that sort of stuck with me through that period. And How'd was, you go? Oh, I was shit house. I was terrible. What, you couldn't close the deal? Could Oh, hopeless. And we ended up moving to the office in, in Cogra. And tried there anyway. I can't remember. Maybe I was there for two years, maybe. And uh, that that was enough for me. I, I wasn't an insurance agent. and But I, I look back at that now and just say, what a positive. Yeah. I hated every second of it. But it was such a positive part of my life, experience in my life, to be able to, to do that. And yeah, so I look back at that fondly with a wry smile. Yeah, but you, got to, you had to move in, I guess, in the finance world of, PE too, haven't you? Yeah, I, I did. I ended up at, after a couple of other things, I ended up at uh, Investec Bank, which I really loved. I was, had a great time there. Uh, I was there for about seven years and uh, worked across different parts of the business, worked with some terrific people, and, and I, I still look upon that very, very fondly. And, uh, and then eventually I ended up as a great guy, David Shane. Oh, yeah. And Dave Shane uh, ended up as chairman of this private equity-owned wealth management business called Centric Wealth. Mm. And Dave fought hard for me to get that position because, as you know, in the search world, there's often these formulas that go out there and the candidates get ranked and then weighted. Each ranking is then weighted. And there was two other candidates that I was up against. And in every category, in every weighting, on everything, I was the worst. And Dave said to them, either he gets the job or I'm resigning as chairman. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So they valued Dave a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> and, and threw me into the fray. And 
and it was it was. What a, did he, why did he place? Why did he place his bet on you? I think he saw that I had some people skills, and that the business needed. There was a good CFO in there, and it needed people skills and leadership. And I'd known I've, I've known Dave now for thirty five years. And he backed me, um, to which I'm eternally grateful. So this is a turnaround situation? Yeah, yeah. When when Champ bought it, no, I won't get the numbers exactly right, but they bought 70% for about $90 million. And when I took it over, they valued the whole business, 100% of it, at $14 million. Wow. <laughs> so three years later, we sold it for around about 130 mil or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was around about that. And so how do you do that? That's now uh, all the audience out there listening- that's why they want to know. How do you do that, Phil? You know, what's, what are you saying? 14 to 130 in three years? In three years. And get it away? We we had fundamentally good people. There were some that, uh, in, in any business that you go into, some people are going to buy into your story and some are not. And if they don't, then there's two ways it can go, really, is, is they self-select or you have to move them on. And in most cases, they self-select. Like, they say, this isn't for me for whatever reason, whether it's me personally or whether it's being asked to be accountable for stuff or whether it's a change of, of their commission deal or whatever it is, they move on. Then there's some, which is the minority, that you have to move on yourself. And then there's the other people that you work with to grow their business. Now, I had terrific people to, to work with. And I picked some new players to come into the team. Yeah. And I think in a number of those cases, those people were actually not right for the job. And what, what I mean by that is not perfect for the job. But they were younger and they, I think, were grateful to have a crack yeah, okay. and they worked their asses off to be successful. So, you know, what did I do anything great there? Not really, except I picked a good team and they worked really hard with me and we had some success the other thing is is the guys at champ um there was a guy called ben siebel uh in particular and 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 dave shane were great mentors and terrific to work alongside and and i really enjoyed that experience of 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 private equity you know you, you've got to be i think it was my old man once said to me you're an apprentice till you die and uh and i love that saying and and private equity guys have seen more deals than I'll ever see an entire lifetime. Yep. And so to not listen to them and not to learn from them is stupid. So I tried not to be stupid and I learned from them and listened to them and, and had a great a, a great outcome. There's also clarity, isn't there? You know there's an outcome and we're all we're all on this together. It's different to a lot of other organizations. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that there's two things about private equity and the 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 exits which I, I would say negative is probably the wrong word but in private equity you never get to pick the date because the private equity firm will pick the date that they exit yeah, right. you don't get to pick it I would have loved to have gone another year I think we had more more juice in us to oh, keep really? going and you can never pick who's going to buy you so you'd never know what the next situation is going to you're going to end up in so they're probably the two negatives, but the rest of it was a great experience. So what's your operating rhythm, Phil, when you, when you read the CEO? How do you conduct yourself? You know, you, you're up at the crack of dawn sending emails or you're rolling it at 8.30 after breakfast, very calm. You're catching up one-on-ones with people. How do you, like you said, you created a team. A few people have decided to move on. We don't know when the exit date's going to be, but we know we're here for a mission. 
how, how do you conduct yourself and conduct or conduct the orchestra? I'm just one of the team. You yeah, know, yeah, but you are the you are the boss of the team. Yeah, but they know more than I do. Like I don't, I don't know how in that situation. I don't know how to manage someone's funds. They've got the better expertise than I do, and if they want to tell me how that works, which you know I've learned a lot along the way, then I'm happy to sit and learn from them. Running Av Jennings now, don't put a hammer in my hand, mate. <laughs> could go horribly wrong, right? I don't know how to build a house or develop a block of land, <laughs> but I've got great people around me that know how to do it. So I'm just part of the team, and and some of the decisions land on my desk, but those decisions aren't, in this case with A.V. Jennings, aren't what sort of timber are we going to use for this roof? That's okay. not my decision. Well, my decisions are other things. So what is the skill? Is the skill you know people, you can work people out really well, or you can make decisions? I think I, I can pick people pretty well. And the critical, absolutely critical skill that these people must have is judgment. That's what I think I'm pretty good at, is having decent judgment. So judgment to pick those people and then the judgment that they've got judgment, <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So I want to be able to empower people to make decisions and to give them responsibility. And you're not going to give that to someone that doesn't have good judgment so that's the thing that you sort of you, you don't know that from day one, but you can work that out fairly quickly with people uh, on different. There's lots of decisions that got to be made, and if they're making far more right than they are wrong, then they've got good judgment. I guess an irony is you end up moving on and doing something like this again in the world of insurance, but as an insurance broker, don't you? Well, sort of. I, I was running an insurance broking firm that was sort of private equity owned. Into risk. Uh, into risk by yep. by a company called Ausbrokers was the major shareholder. So those telephone book in the old days did did some good things for you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that was a different sort of client. It wasn't mum and dad sort of client. It was a more corporate client yep. business, which is very very different. And that was that was an interesting experience. Same setup, same aim. Uh, no, different aim, and and the the CEOs changed of the the bigger business along the way, and so there's a different strategy and different. So I wouldn't say that was as good an experience. In in that world of broking, it's a very self centered world. Yeah, it's a dog eat dog world. People are out to chew each other's commissions up like you wouldn't believe. And so how do you go? And how do you go in that sort of um, atmosphere? That culturally didn't match my values. I've, I've got to say, and I've got to you know there, there's probably two two businesses that I've been part of, and that's one of them, where I made the critical mistake where the culture and the values didn't match my own. I think that's a really important decision for people to be making when they're moving into another job. Can I work in a company that the culture's... Now, you don't always know that it's like that, yeah. but now just about every business, you've got a probation period you've got to go through, yeah, and you've got to, in that period, figure out is this going to be somewhere where I feel comfortably working day in, day out? Talk us through the new one then. You've been in, you've, you're now CEO again of an organisation which has a phenomenal history. Yeah, I, I, I love it. So who is it? It's A.V. Jennings. Yep. Uh, we're a 91-year-old business started by Albert Victor Jennings. Our customers are mums and dads um, and builders uh, along the way. We sell sites to builders as well. There was a Reader's Digest survey a couple of years ago, and it was the it came out as the third most trusted brand in the country. Oh, Qantas might have been just ahead of you then. Yeah, not now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's got terrific people in it. But again, as a 91-year-old business, we need to change and evolve. 
and uh, and that's that's a big part of the job now. And people will want to come on that journey. What was, what was the what was the mandate? What were you given? What were you told? Or what were you? Um, Here we are. We're ninety-one years old, Phil. We're passing passing it over to you. What do you what do you charge to deliver, Phil? I, I guess if I could put it in in two two words, it's modernise and grow. To me, that's the the critical pieces. And when we get the modernisation piece right, and that's across a whole bunch of areas around technology, around so when I talk technology, I'm talking IT technology, but also around building technology, around the people that are in the business uh, as well. They need to be modernised and we're going to grow. And that means grow people as well, as in give them a greater ability to do, to do their job, to educate them, have them feel more confident and grow them as people. You see you're taking on people outside again? Outside the uh, normal positions, you're bringing them in? I mean, I was very lucky that there are a whole bunch of people, in the, really good people in there already. I've, yep. um, as you know, we've hired <laughs> yep. a couple of newbies uh, along the way who have worked out incredibly well. So and I've been very lucky. But again, like I say, some people have left and that's okay. If they don't feel they can fit in and, and it's not for them, that's important also. So I think we've, have we got the team right yet? Pretty close. Not quite there yet, but we're pretty close and uh, we're doing some good things. So what's success going to be, Phil? How are you going to measure that one? You say growth, that's a big, you know, that can mean anything. What sort of numbers you're talking about? What sort of size you're talking about? What type of market share you're after, Phil? Yeah, market share is a tough one in our in our industry because it's such a broad industry. You know, we're, we're a company that's publicly listed where our market cap sort of 150 million something like that at, at the moment. I try not to look at that too much. Is that true? You don't look at it too much? No, I don't. I actually don't. You know, I'd love to be a billion dollar company. That's where I'd love to take the business. Okay. Who knows if I get there? But I'm going to have a crack. Bob, Bob Dwyer uh, again said lots of very good wise things, and and one of them I remember very clearly is we're going to go in and play the All Blacks, and it was uh, a series in about 1990. Two or three, ninety-three, I think, it was a three-test three-test series, which we won two-one. And he said, "Forget about the scoreboard." He said, "If you just do your job and you do it well, then at the end of eighty minutes, you'll look up, and Australia will be more points than New Zealand." So don't look at the scoreboard. So I remember that, and that's sort of the attitude I'd take into this. I've got to get my job right, and if I get the job right, then the rest of it will just look after itself. So that's picking the right people to be on the team and having the right position and training them in the right way and have the right strategy in place. And if we do all that and execute, then scoreboard will look after itself. Okay, what are you looking for in terms of skill sets from people? What's your your basic competencies you're after? Well, you know, there's... uh, a, a level of person that, um, or of employee that I don't pick. Like I'm, I'm not picking uh, the guys that are the site managers, right? I'm the right, I'm the wrong guy to do that. Yep. Except around their attitude. Like if they've got a can-do attitude around things, if they're willing to to learn and listen and not think that they know everything, you know, then that's the right sort of person. They've got a level of resilience. They're the sort of people that we want in the business because things 
don't always go well, as as we know. I call myself Kiss of Death Kearns because <laughs> since I started at AV Jennings, we've had about seven months of rain to start yeah. things off. The war in Ukraine uh, broke out, which caused all sorts of issues around supply, supply chain. chain. Yeah. Then we've had COVID, uh, well, it was the back end of COVID, so you know, finding labour and all that sort of stuff was difficult, a combination of those things. Then we've had 12 interest rate <laughs> rises along the way. And that all sort of happened when I started. So it hasn't been an easy road, but it's been a very rewarding and interesting road. And I've I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Fundamentals are all there then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, fundamentals are there. Okay. Any particular advantages you see or any particular new markets or plays you go you guys are going to make without giving the game away yeah we, we've um just ended in a, in a joint venture uh with a company called pro nine it's around a prefabricated walling system so we're not there just yet but we think we can get to lock up in a house in three days we know that we what, can put, from construction to there's yeah. the keys so once no just to lock up so oh, okay so walls up roof on so jeez we we know we can get all the walls of a house up uh, in one day uh, once the slabs laid and they go up. Yeah, right. And then we're working on a few things to be able to get to. You know, so we're not there yet. So, but we think we can get there to three days, and then a completed house in three months is where we'd like to be because all the cupboards have got to go in the toilets and all, all that sort of stuff. But when these walls come into place. They've already got the electricals through, the windows are in, the plumbing's through, all that sort of stuff. And it's sort of jigsaw puzzle stuff to to a degree. And uh, we've put, um, how many we've put up? We've put on 10 of these homes, uh, three in Sydney, two in Brisbane, five in Melbourne. Uh, we haven't had an energy rating below eight stars yet. And in fact, the ones in Brisbane, we've had 9.4 star ratings. Okay. So- Ticking the box in terms of uh, the environmental benefits, the savings to mums and dads on their power bill, yep. and speed of construction, which you know in this time we've got a shortage of housing, we think is going to be really critical. And you know, I'd love to see the name of AV Jennings um, back at the forefront of the industry, yep. back where it used to be 70, 80, 90 years ago. So, which markets are you strong at, Phil? Is it you know the older, the younger generation coming through? Is it particular suburbs or particular states what's we're we're in um all states um not so much in western australia anymore we're just selling out of there our, our markets are interesting a lot of downsizes so okay. mums and dads downsizing yep. and in many cases they're actually helping their kids buy a house yeah okay, and, right. uh, and so we've got the younger market as well yep and it's it's quite interesting. We do get a lot of our younger customers saying that they went home and they told their grandma that they're buying an AV Jennings house. And grandma goes, "Oh my God, this is an AV Jennings house. We've been in for fifty years." And there's there's a lot of that brand recognition that that goes on. So we do get reinforcement for <laughs> from a lot of the our, our elderly AV Jennings homeowners from thirty, forty, fifty years ago. What still is the house, Phil? You know, is it how much is marketing? How much is word of mouth? How much is getting the best block in the in that space? What what sells the house? Uh, what sells the house is quality and value. That's what sells it at the end of the day. We we spend quite a bit of time and money getting the designs of our house right, but also the finishes of the house right. And a really important piece is the landscaping out the front and attention to detail and quality around that. 
I've got to say, I, you know, I went for a, a, as I do, go for a drive and have a look through our communities around the place. And yep. I'm, I went out to a little one called uh, Arcadia Grove a couple of weeks ago, which is out Campbelltown area. Oh, yeah. And I thought, how good is this? Like, uh, everyone was at work, unfortunately, because I wanted to. I wanted to see someone that I could speak to and say, tell me about your house. What do you love about it? But everyone was at work, unfortunately. But I just drove through and thought, we've done a really good job there. And I think as a leader, or not even as a leader, anyone in the company that went for a drive out there, and there's a number of our communities around that you could do that in, and go, you know what, I'm proud to work for this joint because we've done a good job. All right. Based still on that, what, and that's probably what you've answered anyway, but any other major points of differentiation? Oh, it's pretty confusing when you're going to buy a house. Who am I going to go with? Yeah, and it is. And there's a lot of people out there, and they all say the same things. I think the the difference the difference is we've got 91 years of caring. Um, and, I, and I think it is that factor. Our, our people really care about what they – the attention to detail they put in, the quality of what we do. They actually really care about it. And I've heard people argue – which is a good thing, um, internally about, you know, design of this or the finish of that and whatever, because they want to get it right for their customer because they're proud of what they do. I think it's important. So what's um, what's changed in the last, from what you've read, Phil, in the last five, 10 years and what I'm, what I'm looking to buy in a house? Well, I think that's the point of the, the, the joint venture we've got with Pro9. Nothing's changed. What do you mean? Houses. The people still build the house exactly the same way that they built it 40, 50 years ago, still put the frames up and the bricks go in and then, you know, then we pluck that into there and it, like nothing's changed. And that's why this is such a revolutionary thing is, is to be able to get this technology to have a quality of house, which because it's actually made in a factory, the quality of the finish will be better. Yeah, okay. um, there's less human error that, that goes on. So the quality will be better. People will get their home quicker and, I think environmentally, which obviously everyone's concerned about, it's a great outcome there. So so not a lot's changed in the building industry in, in a long period of time. Your name was bandied around town a number of times for the CEO for the big gig in rugby. Mm. What's happened there? Um, it was, and, and you've written letters as well, haven't you not? <laughs> it was more than bandied around. Yeah. No, I was very keen to get the, the Rugby Australia job, which I, I didn't get. Raylene Castle got that job. And we, we were in bad shape anyway, and we ended up in worse shape. Yep. And there was a group of Australian captains who were very concerned about the state of the game and where it was heading, because it was going further downhill. So we wanted to stand up for the game and the jersey that we love so much and that's given us so much. And it was it was a letter that wasn't taken lightly. There are a number of captains that didn't want to sign it. They thought, no, let's just keep everything in-house, but we'd kept everything, our dirty laundry in-house for a long time and it hadn't worked. Yeah, okay. So it needed change. But everyone knew it, didn't they? Yeah, everyone knew it. But no one's going to come but, out and say it. No, particularly Publicly. the people that are running it. Yeah. There's a great saying, I think it was Jack Welsh and Dave Shane actually told me this one, was change before you have to. And unfortunately, <laughs> we had to. And the other part of that quote is accept reality as it is, not as it was or you wish it were. And we had to accept reality as it was. 
you know, we could wish whatever we wanted to, but that wasn't where we were at. And I think those 10 captains that signed that letter appreciated that. So go on, train of events. Oh, well, it ended Le- up. Levy goes in. There was a, a change. And th- this is, by the way, after um, I wasn't CEO and I'd sort of moved on. Yep. Hamish McLennan came in as, as chairman, which I think was a was a great selection. There was a lot of hard decisions that needed to be made. And if there's anyone that's not scared of making hard decisions, it's Hamish. And so he stepped up to the plate. And, you know, to be fair to him, he put his own reputation on the line to go to an organisation that was broke and put together a plan with Rob Clark. He brought Rob Clark um, in as, as CEO for the interim period and away we went. And they saved the game. It would have gone into administration for sure. They worked it out. They did a great job. Um, and then Andy uh, Marinos came in and I, I actually talked to Hamish, you know, about potentially getting that role again and he said, I've got a better job for you. I said, better be good. <laughs> and, and he said, it's to run our bid to get the 27 World Cup. Yep. And I said, hmm, that actually sounds quite interesting. I said, what's it involved? He said, well, you and I are going to lobby all the world rugby people around the world. We'll have to do some travel and get on planes and we're going to talk to them all. We're going to tell them why Australia is the best place to have this, this rugby World Cup in 2027. I said, who am I working with? He said, well, I've put together advisory board, which has got Elizabeth Gaines from Fortescue yeah. and Olivia Worth from Qantas, and it's got um, some names that aren't really well known to anyone, like Sir Peter Cosgrove, <laughs> Sir Rod Eddington, um, John Coates. I'm missing someone there. Oh, John Howard, that little, that little guy. Yeah. Um, it was awesome. Um, uh, Love John. And uh, John Eels and Gary Ella. I thought, okay, that's a pretty fair group. <laughs> I can work with them too. And said, I'm in. And then about two weeks later, and there were some great RA people to work with too, a- Anthony French and uh, uh, Alicia Keogh in particular were, were great and a bunch of other people. I guess this would have been top priority too, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, because it's it this, was the pathway. The game needs to be saved. Yeah, and this is a pathway to a great injection of cash for Australian rugby, yep. albeit in 2027, yep. but a great pathway to that. British Lions in 2025 on the way through and a bit of stuff happening in between with the World Cup. Yep. And we thought this oh, this is going to be great. And then we were going to take off and travel the world and then COVID hit and we went nowhere. So <laughs> so we basically we did the campaign via Zoom. Which That's was, hard. Well, yes, it, it it was and it wasn't. You know, Australia. Well, some of your magic is how you meet people, right? Yeah. And how you engage. You've got that style about yourself. Not not as easy over over a screen, is it? No, it's not as easy over Zoom. You know, the great thing that that we have here in Australia is Australia. <laughs> that, that's the great thing that we've got. We've got some of the best stadiums in the world. We've got sports mad public. We've got the experience that we've run Olympic Games and World Cups and cricket and Commonwealth Games and we know how to put on big sporting events and the world knows that we know how to put on big sporting events and Australia sells itself. Mm. It, it really does and we just had to sort of put it together and, and um, we did that and we really worked as a, as a great team through the whole thing. It was, it was a really good experience. Outside of Australia, what's unique about the proposition that you put forward? 
compared to what you understood the others were putting forward? Oh, we, we had no idea what the others were putting forward. Nothing on the on the telegraph coming no, through. No, 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 no spies in the camp. No, we knew Jeez. nothing. Really, what was going what was going on? Rugby uh, world rugby held a pretty tight process. We knew absolutely nothing. We knew that the USA were bidding, and you know, there's a massive sure financial powerhouse yeah. Yeah. right there. You know, there was talk of about Qatar having a crack at that because they already had the soccer. Then there was yeah. talk about Russia having a go. Well, they sort of got disqualified along the way. Yep. Um, and then there was talk of the UK making another bid, and so we just worked as hard as we could and as as smartly as we could with with no knowledge of what was really happening outside. If you were given the role, instead of Hamish, if you were given the role of CEO. Or chairman. Or chair. Okay. Well, which one would you prefer? CEO or chair? Uh, probably CEO. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you've been great. Just say today you've been granted the role of CEO. The business of rugby. What do you have to do? Because it's still a long way to go. It's, as you said, you've set, you put something up there now, but you've still got to build it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would put as number one engaging with the grassroots as critical. You can't solve all their problems, but winning is, is part of that. It's a really difficult job because the scope of the engagement is very, very broad from women's rugby, women's sevens, country rugby, uh, juniors rugby, GPS and schools rugby across all the states. Uh, and then you've got all the states you've got to deal with with their, their own bodies. Then you've got the sponsors, you've got the TV <laughs> TV audience and the TV rights. people with the rights holders. Yep. Um, you, you've got world rugby, then you've got to deal with Oceania, you've got to deal with government at all levels you're dealing with. It's, it's a really broad job and it's a difficult job. So the people that you have next layer down from CEO, you have to make sure are right because when you're in talking to World Rugby and you're in Dublin, you need the people to be here on the ground to be making calls. And, you know, we talked about judgment before and you want to be really confident that they've got good judgment. So those people are critical to, to your organisation. So if I, by the way, I don't want that job anymore. <laughs> so Phil's quite free to have it. Um, but if there's one word of advice to Phil that I would say is make sure that those people are absolutely A1. And and I don't know enough to know if they are or not, but that's his call that he's got to get right. The product of rugby? Yeah, I think, you know, we go back to it again. A great game is a great game. One of the, the, the best games that I've seen over the last 12 months mm -hmm. is is the women's final between New Zealand and England. What a cracking game of football that, that was, of rugby that, that, that was. Yep. So I've seen lots of good ones. And so when you see a game like that, you think, what a great product this is. And then you see some of the other ones and you think, this is dreadful. So I, I think... Um, and you've got some strong, strong competition in this country. We do have strong competition in this, in this country. And I say our, our critics uh, and our press are very critical. I don't think there are many critics of the actual game in, in the other ones. But I've watched dreadful AFL games, yeah. dire. And, yep. and same with rugby league, dire games. And so you say, well, 
why aren't they thinking about changing their rules or whatever, whereas a lot of effort and a lot of talk goes into us changing our game and our rules. What we have to remain fundamental to our game is that there continues to be the spot for the fat bloke and the tall bloke uh, and the not-so-fast guy and the really quick guy. We, we have to maintain that fundamental of our game because that's what makes it different, makes us different. Spare time, you're um, big into charities, and you've chosen one of the hardest hills in the country to run up and down a few times, <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah, that was um, the, the Balmoral Burn has been a, a terrific thing to be part of uh, over the last 20 plus years. I think it's 23 years now. Yeah, I started a little run. Um, Why'd you start it? My. Second son, Finn, was uh, in hospital with suspected meningococcal. Which is what? Uh, basically, it's a virus that can force you to lose your fingers and, well, it can kill you, uh, essentially. And I was actually at what was going to be an awesome lunch. It was um, at Paddington Barracks and oh, yeah, yeah. With, with Peter Cosgrove and Steve Waugh and a couple of um, Peter's direct reports and... I thought, we're going to settle in for a good arvo here. And the sergeant comes in and says, you got to get off to the hospital. Your son's just been admitted. Um, so I got in a cab and uh, got off to the hospital as quickly as possible. I rang my, rang my mother-in-law on the way. She said, you better get here quick because he's not going to make it. Uh, and then we ended up and we had about five days in intensive care. They were filling him full of drugs. They were trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And I just thought, well, you know, I was in a – we. Uh, Julie and I took turns to sleep in this cot, which was definitely Alan Alder had slept in this in mash. Like it was, yeah. it was pretty average. The care was amazing. The environment wasn't, if I could put it that way. The you know could have done with a lick of paint on the walls, for example. So I thought, why don't I do that? I'll raise some money, ten grand, and um, we'll paint the walls. Anyway, so I tracked down a guy called. Peter Hatfield, if you'd be old enough to remember, yeah. was a great decathlete and yeah. competed in a number of Com Games and Olympics. And Pete said, oh, and I'll help you to put the run together because he knew a bit about athletics. And he said, but you need to speak to this bloke called Paul Francis at Humpty Dumpty Foundation. I thought, okay. So I rang up this bloke and said, this is what I do. I want to raise 10 grand and have this race up the hill. And so we had our, our first Balmoral Burn dinner. We had to deal with council. We had to deal with the RTA to allow us to run. Oh, really? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there's, a, there's a bus route yeah, in the middle yeah, of there, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, did all that. And on at the dinner on the- Well, it's uh, a steepest street, isn't it? It's a really- It's it's not very far. It's only 420 metres. I've run it years ago. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a killer. It's a killer. 420 yeah. metres. You just don't tell people it's uphill. And <laughs> you never told me that. <laughs> And anyway, so we raised, um, the first year we raised about 70 grand. Yeah, right. And I thought, okay, my job's done here. And Paul says, no, 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 we're doing it again next year. Oh, God. So we raised about 120 grand the year after and about 250 the year after that. And then we got to uh, about four years down the track. I had an accident with um, my daughter, Andy. I ran over her in the driveway of our house one morning. Yeah, so no, I was going to... Was that, I was in the morning, was it wasn't night? No, it was in the morning. It was um I'd just come back from a swim at Balmoral and yeah. the shape of the driveway I couldn't really see that she'd come running out from around the corner where Julie was at the clothesline and, and Andy ran out and I didn't see her. Oh, and wow. uh just went straight over forwards. I didn't reverse, I did the full hog forwards. 
And uh, I remember Finn, who was only maybe four or five years old at that time, my number two, who'd been in hospital, the one with meningococcal, mm-hmm. he says, you just run over her. And sort of, what? And she sort of looked all right. And then Julie's just rung triple O. And oh, it, she looked all right, did she? You didn't know? Yeah, there was, you no, didn't notice. There was no blood. There no, was no, no anything like that. Yeah, okay. Um, and she was just starting to go very, very pale, which, and. Shock. And in seven minutes, the ambulance was there, and that was important, an important number. And they just said, grab a head and run. And so I grabbed a head, and the ambulance guy had a body, and we ran to the ambulance, and they injected us straight away with this uh, it was they this drug they used for haemophiliacs to stop yeah, yeah. bleeding. Yeah. She had seven of those. They cost five grand each, or they did at that time. And... They just put her in the ambulance and off they went. I went to get in the car to to drive to the hospital and uh, the police pulled up and said, you're not driving anywhere. You'll drive like a maniac, we'll take you. And so I got in the police car and off they went. Julie was in the ambulance with Andy and off they went. We got got into Royal Shore and the equipment that was – because Humpty – essentially funded to buy used used to buy hospital equipment for Royal North Shore Hospital. Yeah, right. Um and that was what Humpty was set up to do. And so there was Andy being treated by equipment that had been bought by Humpty Dumpty Foundation and its supporters. So karma is the word that comes to mind with that yeah, one. Right. And uh so it was Humpty equipment that saved her life. And so since then we've had twenty two I think it is, or 21 Balmoral Burns. Um, we've raised about 35 million bucks from, from the burn, and now we buy hospital, or Humpty buys ho- hospital equipment for hospitals all around the country. I think we're up to about 450 hospitals, a whole bunch in the Northern Territory. Um, they're using equipment that is very old in lots of their hospitals, so we put quite a bit of uh, effort into those hospitals. But I think every... A health centre that has kids in New South Wales, we've given at least a piece of equipment to, um, and it's life-saving medical equipment that we focus on. So, yeah, that's that's the involvement in Humpty. Toughest time of your life that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How long was she in hospital for? Six weeks in intensive care. Intensive? Yeah. Well, it, was, it was actually really at the at the end of it, and I heard a similar story about this just, just recently. She wasn't getting better sort of no one really knew why she was struggling with some breathing and struggling with other things and julie said take the intubator out take the tubes that were down her throat take them out and they wouldn't do it and after about three days of julie harassing her harassing the nurses and the doctors they took them out and within two days she was on the ward and you know, mothers have this sixth sense um, that yeah. cannot be denied. And I heard a similar story to that recently where a mother said, take the tubes out, and the kid got better almost immediately. So, yeah, that that was um, uh, certainly a life-changing moment. I think I think from then... What has it changed, Phil? I want to do everything all the time, every day. Like, don't waste a moment because you never know what shit's going to happen. <laughs> And so let's make the most of every day that you possibly can. And so I try to do that. And I think that ties in sort of nicely with having a crack too. So, um, yeah, no, I think that's probably the main 
thing that's that in, attitudinally has changed my mind. Don't don't waste a moment. Rubbed off at home. And the only reason I ask that, you're not the only one who's got a bit of a high performance sporting background in the in the uh, in the family. Yeah. So child. Well, I'm proud of all my kids. You know, my eldest son Wilson played at Newington, played rugby at Newington, and played uh, subbies rugby rugby for Mossman. Didn't play last year, but I I love watching him play as much as I love watching Matilda play. Yeah. You know, Finn's been playing in um, uh, number two in San Diego, playing rugby over there in San Diego. How much fun! Yeah, and. Andy, my youngest, has just got back in her, in her running, so I'm anything just watching that. And Tilly, we've got a high performer, so she she went to the Olympics water polo uh, in Tokyo. Unfortunately, we didn't get to go over and see her compete because of COVID. Okay. So she's she's pretty good player. Yeah, how tough is that game? Oh my god. She said to me one day, I reckon she might have been 15 or 16, and I used to play water polo up until I was about the age of 16, something like that. So I thought oh, I knew it. See, there's one size. That's one body shape that would have worked out well then. Yeah, 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 you can do that. Well, it's funny. She, Tilly used to um, play netball, and she used to do swimming. And she sort of liked netball, but didn't love it, but she liked the team aspect of it, and she loved that there was a ball in it. And she did swimming squad, and she liked it, but she didn't love it. And then she said to Julie one day, is there a sport I can play in the pool where they've got a ball and a team? And Julie goes, yeah, water polo. She said, I want to give it a go. So Julie took her down to Manly Pool, and she had her first crack at water polo then, and that was it. There was only one thing that she wanted to do in her life from that moment on, and that was to represent Australian water polo. And she did it. She's turned out to be pretty good, um, to say the least. But, you know, she said to me one day when she's about 15 or 16, and I tried to give her some advice uh, about the game, which is pretty unusual because normally I don't say anything to my kids about anything they've done on the field unless they ask me a question. Oh, really? Because one of the greatest things that ever happened in my rugby career is that my dad never laced on a boot. So he just went there to watch because he loved me. That was it. As opposed to the other fathers giving advice to the oh, kids and yeah. put them down and all that kind of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Worst, never, you, worst thing you can see. He never did any of that, and yeah, right. and that was fantastic. So I've, I've really tried to learn that lesson. Did your old man play any sport at all? Yeah, he loved golf and tennis. Was his two <laughs> things. That was what he loved. And mum loved tennis. So I tried to give stupidly Tilly some advice. She said, "What would you know, Dad? You don't even play water polo." And so I thought, "Okay, I'll show you." When I went and joined an old man's team. Um, which is still going today. They're a great team, the, the Wizards, the Mighty Wizards. Where are they at? Um, where, wherever the game is. And I haven't played for about a year because I've had crook shoulder. Um, anyway. Oh, you're making excuses already? Yeah, yeah, I am. But let me tell you, two minutes in that pool is as hard as playing 80 minutes of rugby. Like, it is a hard physical game. And I'm the second worst player that the Wizards have ever had. But they tolerated me for... <laughs> for a while and hopefully I'll go back I've just been getting some treatment to be able to go back and play it's fun but I'm sort of glad that I did that say that to her because um, you know getting in the pool there but it's a hard game and particularly when you've got young people that are like under 40 that you're playing yeah. against and particularly when the opposition team throw a few 18 or 16 year olds in and they're flexible and fast and all that sort of stuff and anyway 
yeah, no, Tilly, Tilly's become quite a quite a special athlete. Congratulations, Phil. Just looking back at um, your career as a sports person and also moving into corporate as a CEO, we always hear the discussion around the best of what sports got to offer. Can it be applied to business? You talked resilience earlier. One of the most overused words I've got to sit back and listen to all day long. Then the flip side of that is high performance, and some of them even know, wouldn't know what it looks like. Have you ever felt anything near as good in business as you have for sport? Can you change the psychology of that in business, like, or is it, or is it just a dream? No, there there are a, a lot of things, and and we've had the cliches. Yeah, no, the joy the joy that I get in terms of a corporate world and corporate success is seeing other people succeed. That's I, I love seeing that. You know, when someone hits a target, or someone gets promoted, or someone hits their thirty year with with the company, or yep. to see people succeed, and that you may have played a small part in that success. I, I think that motivates me enormously to, to be able to do that. But it, and, and one of the key differences between a sporting team and a corporate team is goals. It's the easiest thing in the world to motivate a team, a sporting team, to say, we're going to win the World Cup. This is our goal. You can actually see the thing, you can feel the thing, you understand what it means for everyone in the team. So it's very easy for everyone to be on board with that goal. We want to win the World Cup. Pretty simple. It's, I it's, want to win Olympic gold. It's I a finite to, deadline too, right? It's a finite deadline. Yeah, okay. In the corporate world, whether it be A.V. Jennings or whether it be BHP, I don't know how many employees BHP have got or Commonwealth Bank. Yep. So we're going to hit an EBITDA target of a billion dollars, whatever the number is, yeah. right? I guarantee you most of the people there or a huge Just number of them over. couldn't give a stuff. Yeah, yep. So, so how do but you that's exactly, okay. But that's okay. You, they're as relevant to the organisation as anyone else is. And, you know, their their personal goal then becomes more important. So their personal goal might be, I want to put three meals on the table for my family. I want to be able to afford my mortgage and go on a holiday every second year. And if that's their goal, fantastic. I've got to try and enable that goal. But they couldn't give a stuff about the EBITDA or what the ROE is going to be or anything about that. That's not that doesn't float their boat. Yep. So I guess uh, to to be able to provide an environment where they enjoy coming to work. They enjoy a bit of growth, perhaps in personal growth and what they're doing, and they can put three meals on the table and they can afford their mortgage and they can go on a holiday every second year. There's something to be said for that. So there are similarities, but there's some big differences in the goals as well. The similarity really is picking the right team at the senior exec level and building like the grassroots, yeah, okay. building some people in the business that surpass you, succeed you, and other people at senior levels, and building that team and the culture where people want to be part of it, it's, it's, it's the critical piece. So the philosophy, keep it simple? Definitely keep it simple. I'm, I'm not a complex person. And am I going to see little <laughs> signs up on the wall and all that kind of stuff, or am I not? Are you into that? Um, I've put the man in the arena on the wall. Because that's really important. What's well, where it counts. Um, 
Yeah, and and that is really important that people along the way know that it's okay to fail, but it's only okay to fail if you've had a crack. It's not okay to fail if you haven't had a go. That's a critical piece. Are you going on loyalty now? I'm just interested because there's an enormous amount of movement happening at the executive level since we've come out of COVID. Has it changed much in what you're seeing out there in your landscape? Do you have to work harder as a CEO or anything in that regard? In, in you know, I think, again, you've got to – for a company like ours, it's been around so long, and I would say underperformed to to where it could have gone. Yep. I think it's really important to build confidence in the organisation and you can only build confidence in the organisation if the people in the organisation are confident. So we've done a fair bit of work around that. and That's external, internal? Both. Is that okay? Yeah. And I think that's been quite successful and hopefully that builds some trust and trust then leads to empowerment empowerment leads to accountability and i'm starting to use some cliched words there but <laughs> but it's really important if you say you're going to do something just do it yeah don't look for excuses no it's it's sort of not that hard and again but if you're accountable for something and you fail make sure you've had a go don't, don't fail timidly <laughs> fail greatly okay you get success What's next? How far, how far ahead do you look? Um, you know, I guess... I guess As actually, a chief exec, you've got to be looking a few years ahead. So how far ahead are you looking? Yeah, oh, um, definitely three to five years looking out that far. All right. Um, that's as the CEO? Oh, that's... Or is that just as Phil? No, that's not necessarily... That's for, a comp- for the company. Okay. You've got to be looking at, like, what a... What are the trends? What are the people that are underneath you? And where do you think they're going to end up in the organisation? And so looking, I don't like using the word, looking down, but also looking out, what's next? And that's that's sort of your job is around strategy and setting that and who's going to take over. Do I think I'll be at Avi Jennings in 10 years? Absolutely not a hope in hell. I hope I'm... I'm Replace yourself? Oh, Absolutely. Hopefully, I'm on a golf course or something. <laughs> then I've got my handicap and some Come on, Phil, what, is, what else you want? To, what else you want to do? I come you, on. No, no, no. I, I actually, I actually, I actually don't know. I'm really happy what I'm doing now. I know that I've got a finite timeline there, and but I want to set up a person that takes over f- from me with a great opportunity to take it even further. So, if we do happen to make a billion dollar market cap, let's say we do make it. Well, I've got to leave with it set up for the next person to take it to five billion or three billion or whatever that number is, and that number might not even be important to that person that takes over. Yeah, right. Um, but you've got to leave it in great shape for them to pick it up and run with it. Are you going to put your hand back up for rugby again in some form or another? No, I'm, I'm on the local organising committee for the 2027 World Cup. Yep. Um, that appointment was just made a little while ago, um, a month or two ago. So, you know, I'm looking forward to being part of that. And who knows what goes after that. You know, I, I hope at some point in the not-too-distant future my kids have kids <laughs> and that will be a big part of the plan into the future. But I, I, I don't want to be 80 and <laughs> still in a corporate job. Fair enough. Phil, if you were to look back at that young, that young gentleman packing his bags, jumping into that train, 
off his way to Newington. What advice would you give him now? Oh, I mean, I, I actually, I, I think I've been really lucky in my life to be given advice when I needed it at the right time. So, so it depended if that young kid getting on the train at, at Hurstville Station needed a piece of advice to them. You know, I think I've said a number of times through through here in terms of having a crack, I think that's really important. And I think it's really important to embrace every minute of every day as much as you possibly can and, 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 and embrace life. So I think maybe they're the bits of advice that, that I'd that I'd give. It's no point giving someone advice if, <laughs> if they don't need it at that particular point in time, just straight over the head, that'll go. So I, I think they're the they're probably the main the main things. Um life's life's good. On that Phil, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.